you know, you think that your worldview is everybody's worldview, that the church you've been a part of has been kingdom value related, not culture value related. And suddenly you start hearing some of these stories and the preponderance of examples is just utterly disappointing. And you realize that this is the water in which I have swum, lived my entire life. And so what do I do with that? Again, it was a holding the mirror up to my face. Welcome to season two of the Shades of Hope podcast. These are frank conversations between two friends who are committed to the role of the church in the work of racial justice. These conversations will help you understand how Jesus' life and ministry were about justice for all people and will inspire you to actively engage in the work of reconciliation and justice wherever you find yourself. Well, again, thank you to all of our podcast listeners who have joined us in this second season. We are so excited. Pastor Jeff and I have decided that we're going to have some special guests and some incredible pastors and those that can speak to the subject matter of how we as the Church of Jesus Christ can do a much better job of, number one, coming together, unifying our forces, and actually doing a much better job as it relates to racial unity and racial reconciliation. And so I have the privilege to introduce our guests on today. We have an incredible young man. He and I have been in ministry about the same amount of time. And so I introduce to our listeners, John Gable, pastor of the Tabernacle Presbyterian Church here in the great city of Indianapolis. Hello, John. Pastor Moore, thank you. Jeff, great to be with you. It's good to have you, John. I've never been introduced as young or incredible, so (laughs) we're off to a great start. Thank you. You are both of those things in this city. (laughs) Yes, you are. I wish you guys could witness the work that John and his ministry is doing in our great city. And so, John, why don't you talk a little bit about yourself and the ministry? Yeah, Again, thank you so much for having me. I've really looked forward to this time. I've been at Tabernacle for 14 years. Tab, as we know ourselves, located kind of on the north side of the city. We've been in ministry for about 170 years right now. A hundred of those years, exactly, at the corner of 34th and Central. Long ministry in the city, particularly an involvement in recreation ministries for almost 100 years, serving urban youth in football and basketball and soccer and et cetera, et cetera. Also, strong commitment to the strength and the vitality of our neighbors in that near north side community. It's a wonderful ministry, has been, and I'm very blessed to be a part of it. And I can say that we have also been blessed from the Krajewski family. Our children both were able to participate 
in the sports programs that you guys put out. I mean, it has a wide, wide reach in our city. And it, I mean, it just has a great reputation for how you create space for people of all backgrounds to be able to participate as their children are kind of coming up in sports programs. So I just want to say as somebody who has benefited, thank you very much for the work that you guys do. Uh, Jeff, thanks for saying so. Thrilled that they're involved in the program. And I can echo that. My children were also very much involved in some of the basketball programs there at TAB. And um, a lot of our parishioners, uh, one of our famous parishioners, came up through that program, plays professional basketball. And so we uh, are very, very proud of the work that TAB has been doing throughout all these years. Wow, you said over a hundred and something years the church has been in the community. Yeah, a hundred in the community and almost a hundred doing sports ministry. Could you just talk a little bit more specifically about the community in which you're serving? The immediate neighborhood is predominantly African-American. It's been through the transitions from the 30s, 40s, 50s, when there was significant white flight to the northern suburbs. But TAB, during that time, mid-60s, made the decision to stay in the neighborhood. And we knew at that time that the change of our population would also change the program and the kind of ministries that we would be doing. And that also is at least a 50-year commitment that we continue to live into and out of. We really believe God has called us to this time and place. Yeah. Yeah, John, that's super interesting, too, because historically in our city, that's not the narrative, right? Right. So historically, as people moved to the suburbs, churches tended to follow. Yeah. And I know that you weren't personally there when the decisions were made, but do you have any insight into how that conversation went and what it looked like for, was it a very intentional staying? In other words, was there a decision that said, we are not going to go to the suburbs? Very much so. In fact, there is a document that was written in 1966 that I keep with me all the time. Hmm. I'm still a paper calendar (laughs) kind of guy. And in my day planner, I have this document that I read with some regularity. And it specifically says that we believe that God has called us to this time, this place, this ministry. And we know that the changes will radically influence our membership, the kinds of programs that we do, and the kinds of ministries that we'll be following. Mm. It's very inspiring to me. Yeah. It's exciting to hear how definitive the leadership was at that time when it would have been really easy to justify a move. Our people are there. Very we much need so. to go where they, you know what I'm yeah. saying? Oh, very so much so. That's just a real testimony, I think, to the legacy of that congregation in our city. I'm proud of that decision in 1966. And just as a follow-up to it, in 2016, we realized that we are 50 years out from that decision. So as a congregation, we ask ourselves, are we still committed to this? And we spent a year evaluating, and we determined that we are. Mm. And out of that, we wrote a vision renewal statement that basically says, not only are we committed to being here, but we're committed to three things, greater faith, deeper relationships, and a stronger community. That's our vision for the next 50 years. 
Mm, Outstanding. Gosh. You know, the church I pastor is a few blocks from Tabernacle, and we ended up getting that property, of course, way before I got there in the 30s as a result of white flight. And so Jeff's observation is really interesting, the historicity of your decision. 30 years before you all decided that in 1960 that you're going to actually continue to stay. Yeah. Most of the congregations had already, I should say most of the predominantly white congregations have already fled the inner city, the inner core of Indianapolis, and had gone up north. And so you guys stayed even through all of that, and then you decided to to really stay, which is really interesting. So, you know, we sit here in our little spaces, and we can talk about the theory of what we believe God's called us to, but then we have to put those things into action in the spaces where we've been called. And sometimes that's where the rub comes. What have been some of the challenges for you in making that commitment as a congregation in terms of how it practically played itself out throughout the years? And even today, what are some of those, you know, same challenges of trying to be faithful to your calling in the neighborhood that you find yourself? Yeah, that is a great question. And it is one that we continue to think about continually. I can't really speak over the past 50 years, but certainly we can envision that as people moved away, their memberships also went away. Their involvement in the church family went away. They found new church homes. And with that, the resources of their time, their energy, their money. And so in many ways, the personality of TAB changed during those years. Now we find that the people who come to TAB do so very intentionally. Many of them are multi-generational families. Many of them come specifically because of the kinds of ministries that we do in that neighborhood. So they're driving past other churches because they want to be a part of TAB. I'd also say that many of the folks that left TAB over the years will still look back on their experience of TAB with real fondness and encouragement. I have a saying that you can't quite get the smell of TAB (laughs) out of your clothes. And I love that about our church and our ministry. That's pretty exciting. You know, where you're located is definitely in the core of the African-American community, and you are somewhat of an anomaly. And so it took you personally to, when you were called to that ministry, you had to have a certain sensitivity to the fact that you were going to be in a mainly African-American community, though I would think most of your congregation is probably still white. It is. Okay. And so as you've been 14 years, you and I are about the same age. Yeah. Yeah. Young Young men. Young young men. Young men. But (laughs) how has the recent events over the last year or so with the racial tension, the polarizations of our community, not only Indianapolis, but, you know, across the country, as a pastor in that kind of demographic in your church, but yet geographically located in an African-American community, how are you managing all of that? I imagine in the same challenging way that you all are in your churches, depending on what the context is, these issues seem to cut across socioeconomic racial divides. It's been a challenge trying to figure out 
how to interpret the gospel in a way that is uplifting, encouraging, promoting change, and not doing it in such a way that throws people off the boat, you know, turning the speedboat too quickly, we throw people off. And so we try and find ways to speak to the issues in as practical a way as possible, inviting people into the conversation rather than pushing them away from it. Yeah. What are some examples of how you've thought through that? One of the things that I really appreciate about the way that you lead, and particularly in our conversations that we have on a regular basis, is that you are, I would say, appropriately discerning in how you choose to act in these sorts of situations. And so I would just be interested in anything practically that, and I think our listeners would be too, anything practically, as you think through this pastorally, what are some ways that you've entered into that conversation without having to turn the speedboat so fast that you've thrown people off? Yeah, well, I appreciate the encouragement, Jeff, because I'm not sure we've always done it right. In fact, I'm pretty confident that at least I haven't done it right all along. But all of us as leaders have to figure out how fast, how slow, when do we zig and zag. So Mm -hmm. through the years and long before George Floyd and others, we started introducing Sunday school classes that would read a book together to get us thinking. We would do, particularly during, say, Black History Month, every night or at least one night a week, we would offer uh, a movie that the congregation was invited to gather, to watch together that would raise the issue, then have time for conversation. We try and have speakers come in or do small groups. From the pulpit, it would be addressed in different ways that perhaps we can come back to. But again, there was an intentionality to try and move us forward, but at a pace that we could be satisfied, that folks could come along with us. And sometimes I think that was too slow. And at times we found with folks that that was a little too fast. Yeah. And it is, you know, we pastor very similar kinds of churches and we're very different people. So also our personality then is in there too, because I would guess that my error is always probably on the whiplash side. <laughs> and you know what I mean? And so people are trying to slow me down, but like there is no rule book for this. Right. The challenge is that every congregation is different and every situation is different. And yet trying to learn from each other on what does it look like for us to continue to move the conversation forward I think just from my perspective, the conversations that we all have with the other pastor friends that we have are as helpful to just hear what everyone else is doing sometimes, to be in community and conversation with people who are like-minded in this work. I couldn't agree with you more. The conversations that we have had, our little group of three or five, have been so helpful for me because they've encouraged me to keep thinking in new ways, to hear the same message in a slightly different way just encouraging me to keep these issues front and center. But each of us know that we have to lead in our own way. We have to lead out of our own integrity, find our own voice on these. So I can't lead like you do, Jeff, and I can't lead like Pastor Moore leads. I have to lead like I lead and hope that that's sufficient for the day. Well, you know, I so appreciate uh, you and I, John, are in somewhat of the twilight of our ministries, and yet 
what I've appreciated about you is that you have been really open to being a part of these very frank conversations that we've had mm-hmm. and some very difficult conversations around the historicity of racism in our culture. And unfortunately, we've talked very openly about it being so prevalent in our churches. And I, what I appreciate about you is that you are, like you said, you're not running from it. You're learning, and sometimes you help temper us. Well, guys, well, have you thought about it this way? Or, and so you are a valuable part of our Shades of Hope coalition, as we call it. So I appreciate your openness and your ability to have some elasticity in your approach. And so how has it changed your preaching any or your teaching any? Well, let me start by saying I appreciate the comments that you made about me. I feel like I have gained far more from our conversations than I have given. You all have have helped me think through issues in a way that I haven't had to before. From the very beginning of these conversations, I have tried to take the posture of uh, holding a mirror up to my own face, feeling like the work around racial issues, racial justice issues, that I felt like the work had to begin in my heart before I could start to frame decisions or how to speak to others. And so that's been helpful for me, although challenging. And so you all have represented the mirror to me of you're asking me to think of why am I acting or not acting? How am I seeing this? So with regards to the preaching, I'm rather classically trained in a theological tradition, white, evangelical. I don't know whether it's good to use that (laughs) word these days or not, but I mean it in kind of a classical sense of evangelical. Yeah, it's kind of hard. But And so I'm trying to think back, when was my first exposure to any sense of liberation theology? And I know I read some James Cone in seminary. I probably dabbled in some others, but I don't know whether it wasn't offered or whether I didn't gravitate towards it. But I feel now that what I'm needing to do is learn how to read a text and speak to a text in a whole new way. And that's not easy to do in our senior age group, as we might say, Clarence. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, and I do think that looking at the text anew, and I think that's the one growth area that I've seen for myself in our conversations, is that now when I open the scriptures, I have other lenses to use. Not that mine's wrong, right? But it's just not as complete as I thought it was. And that was the big aha for me is that if we don't have other voices who approach the text in very different ways because of different social locations, then we miss out on, well, what Paul calls the manifold wisdom of God, right? That multifaceted way of thinking about the gospel. So, yeah, I really appreciate that. No, and we don't know what we don't know. Right. I mean, we don't see what we don't see. You know, we just visited the Morton Arboretum up in Chicago a couple weeks ago, and I would drive through a forest and not see it. Now I go with an expert and she's pointing out trees and differences and changes of environment. I'm thinking, whoa, now I'm seeing something that I hadn't seen before. All of these issues have helped me do that very much the same. That's a great illustration because you grow up in a system and you've been culturalized in a system. 
And you don't even see your privilege. It's just there. Right. And so for someone to say, hey, have you thought about it this way? I was preaching a sermon series on Ruth, and I made the statement, because I'm also growing talking with you guys. I said, one of the reasons Naomi did not want to take Ruth back to Bethlehem was not so much the fact that she couldn't have more sons. She wasn't sure that her home folk would accept this Moabite back in Israel. Wow. That's looking at that text a little different than we've always looked at that text, that she was concerned with my people accept this woman because later on in that text, they started calling her the Moabitess. They gave her a label. Hmm. And so I think that what happens a lot is when we are exposed to I like the way Jeff says it. This what you call it, what you call it, Jeff? The manifold. Well, Paul calls it this. I just borrowed it from him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the manifold, manifold wisdom, wisdom of God. God. In yes, and so we see things yeah. in that glass a little differently, and maybe in my mind, more biblically and more holistically, because yeah. we are called to be brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of our hue. Let me ask you this question, John. How has reading material like White Too Long by R.P. Jones and some of these books we're reading, how's that challenging you in these times? Well, it was a gut punch at first. Mm -hmm. You know, you think that your worldview is everybody's worldview, that the church you've been a part of has been kingdom value related, not culture value Mm. related. And suddenly you start hearing some of these stories and the preponderance of examples is just utterly Mm. disappointing. And you realize that this is the water in which I have swum, lived my entire life. And so what do I do (laughs) with that? Again, it was holding the mirror up to my face And I'm going to come back to the importance of these kinds of conversations that I'm having with you guys, or we together, simply helping us. Because if I surround myself only with people who look like me and think like me, then I'm only going to be reaffirmed in my own understanding of the world. But if I sit with you, Pastor Moore or Jeff, then suddenly I'm hearing something that I haven't heard before, and my eyes are opened to the air or to the water that I've been breathing or living in my whole life and thinking, oh, maybe there is just another way to think about this. Again, I don't have the answers, but I know it's forcing me to change the perspective, to change the lens, as Jeff was mentioning earlier. I love the way that you're speaking about that transition, because I think sometimes when our eyes are opened up to the water that we're in, there's multiple ways that we can respond to that, right? There's denial. It's not true. There is sort of the flight of, I'll just try to pretend like I didn't see that. But then there's embracing the reality of it. And I think there is sometimes a feeling that feels like guilt for those of us when our eyes are open. How have you navigated that kind of light bulb moment or moments, if it's been moments, and how do you process that internally? In terms of your life with God, you recognize that there are some things that you've not known that you now know and have responsibility for. How have you processed that personally? Well, I can't speak of any of that in the past tense because I feel like it's just the ongoing (laughs) process, right? right? I'm 
saved and being saved. I'm enlightened and being enlightened. Yes. So I think very much like in the conversations that we have together, each time we talk, I feel like I'm coming to a little deeper awareness, a little better change, because I've never thought of myself as being a racist person. But I'm realizing that the sin of racism is not just my individual sin, it's the systemic, that it's a cultural thing, that I need to find my part in, need to find ways to address and change. And so my tradition has always been individual sin is dealt with on an individual basis. And now I'm having to think more systemically and so that's the work in process for me. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know what? If I was in church right now, I'd be running around the church saying, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Did you just hear that statement <laughs> from Pastor John? Well, if that was so, what's the word I want to use? It was very transparent, but really a revolutionary statement that if we got more of our brothers and sisters across the spectrum of ethnicities to come to that realization that it's not just an individual decision. It really is looking at the totality of the system that we're all trying to navigate and saying, how do I, in my locality, in my little world, help change the culture to where all people are really created equal? And you guys are further down this conversation perhaps than I am, but I'm still convinced that it may begin with me dealing with the one individual who happens to be standing right in front of me. That's right. But then for me, it's expanding that what keeps or put that individual in that particular circumstance. And now how do I help to address that? And who do I need to have come alongside me to help us address that. I mean, you can see where the ripple effect goes out. But I still start with the person who's three feet away yeah. from me. That's yeah. a good point. Absolutely. There's a pastor listening to this conversation right now that this is beginning to, as Jeff's illustration, the water they've been in. Now they're realizing that, whoa, I need to take a look at my environment. And just this conversation, just to that one pastor right now that's listening to us, thinking, wow, yep. it's going to help this transformation we need in the church, one person at a time, one pastor at a time. Yeah. And I would just say that, John, we were trained in the same you know, theological tradition. I would not say that we have an either or sort of thinking about sin, right? It's not either personal or systemic. Because I think on the other side of the coin, we have a lot of people who are advocating for systemic change who won't love the person that's sitting right in front of them. Right. You know what I'm saying? So this is where we believe that the gospel has the answers to the questions that the world is asking, because it is both me and we. And so when we read the New Testament, anytime we see you in the New Testament, we know in the Greek that that's a (laughs) y'all. Right. Right. Right? And so, and so when Paul's writing letters, he's not writing to a person, he's writing to a people of which is made up of individual persons who have also responsibility for their own actions. But what we know to be true is that sinful individuals, when grouped together in a uh, community, will create sinful systems. 
Right. I mean, we just naturally do that. That's what we do. And so we have to have a robust enough gospel that says the individual can be transformed and the community in which those individuals are together can be transforming agents. They can change the systems that have been built. And so that's where I feel like for us, it's at least in a white evangelical space, we don't throw the individual sin and responsibility out. We just add in mm-hmm. this idea that there is corporate repercussion. There are systemic repercussions to individual sin. Mm-hmm. And that in and of itself is a change of perspective of the way many of us were theologically yeah. trained. Yes. Very good. Very great point. So we know the history of the church you pastor. They feed African-Americans. They offer health services to people in that community. So many wonderful things. And yet your congregation itself is probably 98% white. No, not quite that much, but 95 could be 90. Yeah, it's predominant. Yeah. And so I pastor a congregation, and I can't say it's because of my community, which my church six, because only like 1% of the people who live around me come to our church. Most people drive in. So we're like 98% African-American. What do you say to the mindset of you growing in this conversation, but yet being okay with homogeneous congregation of predominantly white? And I know how I feel about it from my homogeneous community of being 98% African-American. How do we, like somebody may be listening saying, you know, that seems like a, a hypocrisy to me. I mean, don't we have to be multicultural to be able to really fix this thing? So how do you feel about that? Well, I mean, that's a hard one for all (laughs) of us, right? Mm -hmm. Whether you're pastoring an African-American church or predominantly white church, I think all of us struggle with how to reach the other in that setting. You know, I've often thought that on a given Sunday morning, tabs uh, 90% white, and during the week, those who are in and out of our building are 90% black. And... I think, well, how come those two worlds can't come together? Well, of course I struggle with that, as you guys struggle. And I would love to think about our strategies. I've always been committed to saying whoever walks in our doors needs to be welcomed regardless of who they are, what they look like, whether it's socioeconomically or racial ethnically. And I've always believed that that should at least be the first step. In the midst of this, we're going to try to change the look of those who are in our pulpit and in our platform, realizing that worship styles, worship leadership, the people that they see on the platform will better reflect the diversity of the congregation. That's a slow process, but we would admit that our different historical or theological or cultural backgrounds influence the way we worship. And it's not intentional. It's just we know what we like and we like what we know. And so part of me beats myself up for that. And part of it just says, okay, this is a reality. What else can we be doing? That's a good word. I think we're in the same space right now. I think our particular barriers are a little different in that we inhabit a space where churches that have been here before us were intentionally segregationist in the neighborhood. Mm. And so there was a narrative that was created with, you know, in our neighborhood, the north side of the neighborhood, predominantly white churches, 
south side of the neighborhood, predominantly African-American residents. And there was a very intentional, you're not welcome here sort of messaging. So we're actually working against decades and decades and decades of this embedded separation. And so we have to overcome those sorts of things. So even if we would love to be a multi-ethnic church, the perception in the neighborhood has to be changed before people would even consider, like, it doesn't matter who we really have on our stage if nobody wants to walk through the doors. And so we're thinking about much in the same way that you guys are actively participating in, how do we change that narrative in the neighborhood before anybody would ever walk into our building? And you guys have been doing that for a long time. I mean, and I would say with nominal success, you know, I'm always open to ideas. I'd love to hear it. Pastor Moore, how are you trying to do it? If you're predominantly black, trying to reach a more diverse congregation? I don't think we are being as intentional as we should be. And I think I'm dealing also with the historicity of this whole movement is that a lot of my parishioners are afraid of white folk coming in and taking over because that has been somewhat of a tradition. And so when I talk about our community, it's pretty typical across America. Gentrification is taking place. And so our white brothers and sisters are coming back after leaving Mm -hmm. 60, 50 years ago. They're coming back into the area that my church sits. And so what I'm trying to do is sensitize our leadership to the fact that we need to consider that our new neighbors are going to be wanting to walk to church. And we want to be one of those churches that they can walk to. And so I'm going to be working with people like Pastor John Gable and Pastor Jeff to figure out how we could work some things out so that when some of the white folks show up, I'll have Pastor Jeff preaching every Sunday or so or something like that. So <laughs> Stand in line there. Your congregation would be, they would all revolt. <laughs> they revolt. such a greatly diminished product. <laughs> well, the same would happen to your congregation if I preached every Sunday. So no but way. we'd have to figure out a way. <laughs> that would not be true. We'd have to figure out a way. So, But I guess my bigger statement I want to say is I think it's okay for us to be in our homogeneous environments, but yet be open to the larger context of the church and be open to doing things together and working hand in hand to change the systemic environment which continues to perpetuate and propagate racism. I very much appreciate your saying that, Pastor Moore. Thank you. And realizing, too, that we've been segregated over hundreds of years. (laughs) Yeah. So we won't responsibly desegregate or integrate without a lot of time and intentionality. And so I think in some ways, Pastor Moore and I talk about this a lot, like we're doing work that we may not benefit from. Right. Right. That our children might not benefit from. But the grapes that we're planting now will produce fruit generations down the road. And so just having that longer kind of range vision for what we're doing because you know you could falsely diversify the look of your congregation without changing anyone's heart yes right and so i think that's what we all we want to pastor people through transformation yeah right not just the visible signs of something that may not actually be true behind the scenes and so that just takes a lot of time and effort and energy and intentionality It really does. I've preached in churches that were predominantly white, and they had some pepper sitting out there amongst (laughs) all that salt. And I was saying, wow, there's quite a bit of pepper spots here in this congregation. But what happens is the pepper has to almost assimilate to be the salt to be able to stay 
in that environment. And what we want to try to create at some point is that the salt can be the salt where I am and the pepper can be the pepper. And we don't have to assimilate. We can actually be uniformity, but not necessarily. I have to act and dress like the people that I'm worshiping with. I can be me. And that's what we want to get to. Yeah. We got time for maybe one more question as we wrap up, but I'd be really interested in any advice that the mature, seasoned John Gable would give to his younger self as you look back and think, boy, I wish I could have or would have known or done or, you know what I'm saying, in regards particularly to the racial reconciliation conversation, what would you have liked to know back then that you know now? Great question, Jeff. I think we all at this season of ministry particularly do do some reflection on, I wish I had done something differently. Mm -hmm. I was raised in a suburb of St. Louis, integrated suburb. My high school was integrated, had a good number of black friends. I think if anything, I would try and learn the lessons from my own life Mm. and rethink what I probably knew inherently or intuited of why were their lives different than mine, even though I thought we were going to the same schools and living in the same came. We weren't. There were things that I could have learned early on, or at least recognized in myself, that might have influenced or changed who I was later as I was pastoring, perhaps made me a bit bolder in speaking to some of these issues. But again, we only see what we see, only know what we know. And I think I just didn't unpack their experience and my experience. I kind of lumped us all into the same. And I think I could have learned differently early on. Wow, that's powerful. Yeah, thank you. Awesome. Well, Pastor John, as always, our conversations with you are both insightful Uh, encouraging and enlightening because I have other friends that's in our age group that don't call anymore. Um, Mm. And they have shrunk away from me. And I think the Shades of Hope conversations have somehow chilled our relationship. But you've hung in there. You know, I like to use this whole conversation. You know, a lot of people quit marriage because they don't want to hear constructive criticism from their mates. But you have. You've hung in there. And as an African-American pastor, I appreciate I appreciate that because I know that I've said some things that, and will continue to say things that will probably push buttons when it comes to, <laughs> to you guys. <laughs> so you've hung in there. And uh, so your true brother... I think we're going to all have to stand before the good Lord one day and give an account for our stewardship. This is one area I think that we want to hear him say, hey, well done, thy good and faithful servant. So thanks again. Uh, It has been a great privilege to be invited into this conversation and the other conversations that we've had. And I counted a really great blessing in my life to be able to call both of you, both brothers and friends. So thank you for this opportunity. John, it's been great to have you. Thank you so much. And we will look forward to talking with you again soon. Look forward to it. Take care, John. God bless you. Thanks. Thank you. God's blessings. 
Thank you for joining us for another episode of Shades of Hope. We would like to hear from you. Send us your thoughts and questions at shadesofhopepodcast at gmail.com. That's shadesofhopepodcast at gmail.com. We would also appreciate it if you could leave us a review and rate us wherever you access this podcast. Thank you again and may God bless you as you follow Jesus and strive to make this world a better place for all of God's children. Mm -hmm.